0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 to 13 again. This is the introduction to Mark's Gospel. In beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So recall that Mark's account of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is taken primarily from the Apostle Peter. Mark heard Peter on many occasions. Some think he may have been mentored by him. I don't really know the relationship they had, but there is an indication he was with Peter at the end in Rome. 1 Peter 5 says that, puts Mark in Babylon with the Apostle Peter. That was what they called Rome. So he was there, he heard Peter recount, can you imagine one of the original apostles Peter was originally a follower of John the Baptist. But at John the Baptist's ministry, we learn this from John's account of the gospel, he eventually told his followers, follow him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he moved his followers off to follow Jesus eventually. And Peter was one of them. So Mark heard Peter recount many stories. And he gleaned, he remembered what he heard from Peter, and he assembled it in this book. We know this from several of the early church fathers, 2nd century. They all attribute Mark's account of the gospel to Peter. Peter's memoirs, as one called it. So just a reminder of where Mark comes from. Mark was not an apostle. He wasn't even saved when Jesus was ministering on the earth. So how did it get in the New Testament? Well, it had to be written by an apostle or be influenced or come from an apostle. This was the requirement for a book to be included in the New Testament. So we're looking at this wonderful introduction. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful as it introduces the Lord Jesus Christ to us, his ministry. Last week we got through verses 1 to 6. Now this morning I want to cover 7 to 13. So here's the outline we're going to follow. I don't usually do this, but this was a nice outline I gleaned from one of the commentaries. Four words that all begin with A. Jesus is announced, he's anointed, he's acknowledged, and he's approved. So this is how we're going to think our way through these verses. Remember, John's ministry was to be the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. He was the one, He's about six months older in age. His mother Elizabeth was pregnant about six months before Mary got pregnant. So they're very close in age, but John comes on the scene first and he fulfills that prophecy of the Old Testament of a voice crying in the wilderness or that Elijah is going to come back, according to Malachi, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he's going to announce his coming. Who's coming? Yahweh. The God of the Old Testament is coming in the person of the Messiah. Wrap your mind around that. Yahweh is going to come into human history. He's going to invade our world. He's going to become one of us. On a mission of salvation. That's why He comes. He's on a rescue mission to deliver His people from their sins. So, verse 7. He had just described John, his diet, his dress... We covered that last week, touched upon it. But now, verse 7. And he preached, saying, now the original, it's emphatic in the sentence, it comes first. And he preached or proclaimed, saying, He is coming. Just... Remember that because this is what John is emphasizing. This is is the heart of John's ministry. This is the theme of his preaching. He is coming. The one that is mightier than he is coming. After me comes one who is mightier than I, and so on. So he's coming. This is the subject that John is emphasizing. Therefore, to his people, repent, be baptized, get prepared to meet him. He is mightier than I, he says. He's stronger. That's an understatement. How do you compare Yahweh and a mere man? But this is what John says. He is mightier than I. because he's not a mere human being, greater in authority, greater in power. And then he adds he's not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Now, apparently, they didn't even require slaves to do that, generally. In fact, they weren't asked to do that except on rare occasions. So the most menial task you can think of, that the lowest servant was exempt from. John says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. So John is trying to create uh, the difference between himself and the one who is coming. This is an incalculable difference. Because again, it's not the mere difference of a master and a servant. It's the difference between a mere man and the God-man. This is an infinite gap between them. So John is emphasizing the the towering superiority of the one who is coming. And he adds to that, here's one of the ways in which they differed so greatly. It had to do with their baptisms that they administered. John's baptism, I baptized with water. I just dealt with H2O, the physical substance of water. But the one coming after me, he's going to baptize with or in the Holy Spirit. Just something entirely different. The two are not related. Being baptized in water does not mean we're baptized in the Spirit. You can be baptized with the Spirit and having not been baptized in water. The two are not connected. If you want to know more about, I'm not going to go into it in this sermon because it's a whole study in and of itself about being baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. If you want to read more about it, read the booklet on the back table. The Holy Spirit before and after Pentecost. That deals in there. You'll find an explanation of what that is. But let me just say this. The Old Testament looked forward to the age of Messiah, the coming age. It was looking forward to when he would come, because this would be a brand new age of the Spirit. That God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. In the Old Testament, just uh, unique situations came up when the person was given the Spirit. All of God's people did not have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It was given to leaders, kings, prophets, those who were called to special tasks. But the day is coming when the Messiah is going to pour out the Spirit upon all flesh. And we need to no one recognize this is the greatest gift we have in this age. Next to Jesus Christ himself is the gift of the Holy Spirit. You cannot live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. Everything in the Christian life is connected somehow with the Spirit's ministry in us and through us. So He is the one we need. We are not believers until we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul brings this out in the book of Romans. When we went through Romans chapter 8, remember what Paul said? Anyone who does not have the Spirit, notice he says, "...the Spirit of Christ." Why does he say the Spirit of Christ? Because it's the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to his people. He poured out the Spirit on Pentecost, Peter explained to his congregation that day in Jerusalem. He has done this at the right hand of God. This is If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Paul says, he does not belong to him. So here he's drawing a clear line between... An, unsaved, non-Christian person, and a true believer. This is what makes the difference. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit of God taking up residence in your life? So this is what John announces in verses 7 and 8. Now note, note, secondly, what happens at Jesus' baptism. He is anointed by the Spirit. He is anointed by the Spirit. In those days, in the days of John the Baptist, Jesus came. Notice that verb. I drew a circle around this and connected it in my Bible with a line. He is coming, John said, now Jesus came. Yahweh has come onto the scene. The God-man. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Why do you think he includes that? Remember, Mark is writing probably for a Roman audience, for Gentiles. This is not a book for the Jewish people. Matthew was written for The Jewish people, with all the Old Testament quotations and many things that connect it with God's chosen people. Mark was written primarily for Gentiles. Doesn't mean Jewish people can't read Mark, but so he's got to identify where did Jesus come from? Well, he came from a little village in that region in northern Israel known as Galilee. So this is to locate where he came from. Now that's where Jesus was raised. Not where he was born, but where he was raised. He spent 30 years in obscurity in Nazareth, following the trade of his father, who is not a woodworker, but the language means more of a stonemason. A builder is what Jesus was. A builder of some sort. stonemason. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament, not mentioned by Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, makes no reference to Nazareth, and it's not. Nazareth is not mentioned in the Talmud. What does that tell you? It's a very obscure village, probably less than 500 people live there. This is where he came from. He came from Nazareth. Now, later... Four times in Mark's gospel, he refers to Jesus of Nazareth. Four times. That's one of his titles. There were many men, no doubt, this was a common name, Jesus. Jesus. Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh is the Savior. Many Jewish men, boys, had that name. So how did they distinguish between them? They would do it by, well, where they came from. So this is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the Jesus that came from that village. He has come onto the scene. And he was being baptized in the Jordan. The Jordan River is it connects the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It's the river that runs between the two. It leaves the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is fed by the runoff of melting snow on Mount Hermon, comes down and feeds the Sea of Galilee. The water flows out of the Sea of Galilee and meanders for about 200 miles to get down to The Dead Sea. And there's no exit from the Dead Sea. And there's no life in the Dead Sea. No fish can live in there. The salt and the minerals that are there would not sustain life. It's an amazing place to visit. I got in it when I was there, and I floated like a cork. I had a hard time putting my feet on the ground. They wanted to come up like this. Very interesting experience. the The Dead Sea. During a flood stage, the Jordan River can reach 400 feet in width and 10 feet deep. We don't know where John was baptizing, but most likely it was in the desert part near the Dead Sea. That's wilderness down there. And that's where the people went. They went into the wilderness to hear John and to be baptized by him. Now, the Lord Jesus is baptized by John. Notice that. He was baptized in the Jordan. Now, this creates a theological problem somewhat. Why did Jesus submit to baptism? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for sin committed. But Jesus was without sin. He didn't have to confess any sin. I guarantee it, when John baptized him, Jesus did not acknowledge any sin. He had no sin. Paul puts it very strongly in 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He knew no sin. That's very strong language. He had no acquaintance with sin. So there was no sin to confess. There was no repentance to be done. Why was the Lord Jesus Christ baptized? Well, let me suggest a couple of things. Matthew's Gospel says, I don't want to bring in all that the other Gospels say as we go through Mark. I want to look at just Mark's account. But here I think it's important to add what Matthew says to help us understand this. When he was baptized by John, John said to Jesus, this is Matthew's account of the baptism, I have a need to be baptized by you. Jesus said, allow it to be so right now because it's necessary that we fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus said, Matthew 3, 17. Now you've got to think about that. Fulfill all righteousness? Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ came here on a mission of redemption. He came here, to put it in his words, to do the will of his Father. The will of his Father was different than the Father's will for us. He had a unique charge. There were unique commands that were That only applied to Jesus and do not apply to us. Let me give you an example of that. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. That's a reference to his resurrection, that I may lay lay down my life and take it back in resurrection. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So he's bringing out the the total voluntariness of his sacrifice. He did not have to comply with this. He told Peter, I can call 10,000 angels who will come and deliver me right now. In the garden of Gethsemane. He laid down his life that he might take it again. No man takes it from me. Listen to this. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge or this command I have received from my father. Oh, that's very insightful. This gives us a little understanding into something. There was some arrangement made between the Father and the Son before the Son came into this world that He was going to discharge the Father's will. He was going to do the Father's will and accomplish it almost like a commandment, a charge that He had. That charge doesn't, doesn't belong to you or to me. We're not called to lay down our life in the sense that Jesus was. This is called the, the... We could call it the unique commands of the Messiah or something of that nature that belonged only to Him. So He came to do the Father's will, put in Matthew's Gospel in terms of to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfilling right, all righteousness is to answer God's will, to do God's will, to fulfill God's will. So what's the connection with being baptized then? Because the father, his will for his son was to identify with his fallen people, his people who had fallen into sin, who were lost, who had gone astray, who were alienated from God. He had to identify himself with us as our substitute, as our representative before God, the one who is going to bear our guilt, carry it to the cross and answer to God's justice for our sins. And our guilt, man's guilt is expressed uh, publicly in the confession of sin at John's baptism. So what what I see the Lord Jesus Christ doing, he submitted to baptism in order to show his identification with his people. His identification with us. One, because he had any personal sin, but he was going to bear our sins as our sin bearer. Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But there's another connection we can make with baptism. In Mark chapter 10, when the apostles wanted to be on, on his, uh, John and James, wanted to be uh, Jesus' left and right hand in his kingdom, he told, he told them, as it's not for me to decide that, about that in particular, he's referring to. But he went on to talk about, he asked them, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? This is Mark 10, verse 38. And clearly, he's refer, it, it's, a, it's a reference to his coming death and his resurrection. Don't isolate his death from his resurrection. They go together. So baptism, he he puts his death and resurrection in terms of baptism. It's it's interesting because Paul is going to open that in Romans chapter 6. Baptism, going down into the water, being immersed completely, head and all into the water, And then coming out is a picture of death and resurrection. So, we could say that Jesus was symbolizing his coming, death, and resurrection by his being baptized as well. So, these are some connections we can make that helps explain why Jesus was baptized not because he had personal sin that he needed to confess and repent of. Notice how the baptism is described. Verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, not not coming out of the river and going up the bank of the Jordan, what this means is he had been immersed... And he's, he went underwater. Now, as he came up out of the water, this is what is being described for us. So, this is a picture of real baptism by immersion. What happened? He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So as the Lord Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens, the word is very strong here. It means the heavens were torn apart. It's the same word that's used later in the 15th chapter for the curtain in the temple. After Jesus died and released his spirit, Matthew and Mark tells us that the curtain that hung in the temple, it was a thick curtain, like the curtains that they used to have in theaters. And perhaps they still have them. very thick. There's no way in the world a human could rip those things. That curtain, there was a curtain like that in the temple. very long, very thick. It was torn from the top to the bottom by unseen hands, Ripped in two. Why was the curtain there? Well, it separated the temple, the holy place, from the most holy place. Behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant and so on. On the other side was the table of showbread, the altar of incense, the candelabra. All the priests would come into the first, the holy place. They did their worship there every day. They were in that area. But nobody could go behind that curtain except the high priest. And he only went there one day out of the year. It happened to be on this day. Rosh Hashanah, the day of atonement. Or no, not Rosh Hashanah. That's the new year. Uh, Yom Kippur, which is coming up soon, if not already here. There are Separated by not that long. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest went behind the curtain. Now that, that curtain tore. Very amazing thing. So he's telling us that the heavens were torn open. Strong language, ripped apart. Now, was that something that was seen or something? It could have been, not sure. How they were, but this is how it's described. The heavens were torn apart. And this voice spoke. I'll come to that in a minute. But what's the, what's the idea there of them being torn apart? Well, obviously, the, now the heavens that had been as brass for 400 years. No voice of God. Silence. From Malachi to Mark. John the Baptist. Now the heavens are open. God is going to intervene. He's going to reveal himself. God is going to speak again. So the way into God's presence now is opened. This is the final stage and period of God's revealing himself now that we are in. Hebrews chapter 1 opens by saying that God spoke in times past in many different ways, dreams, visions, through the prophets to the fathers. Old Testament revelation. Then verse 2. But now in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So this is what is happening here. With the heavens being torn apart. Now the Spirit descends on him like a dove. This is beautiful. The Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus. We're told elsewhere that he was given a greater measure of the Spirit than any before him, full of the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? Well, he needed the Holy Spirit for his ministry. Remember, he's a man. He's a man. He needed the Holy Spirit, like we all do, if we serve God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need His power. We need to be equipped by the Holy Spirit, like the Lord Jesus. This is in fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is all from Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 11, 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. This is, this is referring to the Messiah. 800 years before Jesus, approximately 700, 8th century B.C. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. And then the text that Jesus quoted in the synagogue in nazareth that almost got him killed recorded for us by luke the spirit of the lord is upon me remember he got up in the synagogue and he read this he read this text to him the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so on and then he said today this is fulfilled in your ears So the Spirit of God comes down on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's getting ready to begin his public ministry. He's been obscurity for 30 years. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody heard of him except his own little village. There were no miracles. There was nothing to indicate he was anyone special. He comes out of obscurity in connection with the ministry of John the Baptist who announces his coming And the Spirit comes on him like a dove. What do you associate with a dove? Well, a dove is such a gentle little bird. Harmless. They make a beautiful sound. There's innocence there. They're the symbol of peace. Uh, Why... why did it come down in the form of a dove? Because this is telling us something about the ministry of Jesus, the character of his ministry, the spirit in which he is going to go about his ministry. It's going to be like a dove. Now, thirdly, he's acknowledged by the Father, verse 11. The Father speaks out of heaven. This is audible. The voice was heard. A voice came from heaven. Now we know it's the Father because it says, You are my beloved Son. This is the Father speaking. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. These are two distinct persons in the nature of the one God, Yahweh. The voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. The word for beloved here means the one and only. The one and only, my one and only son, loved by the Father. This this word, it's a little different word in the original. It has that form of agape in it, but yet it's, it's spelled differently. It's a different word, but it's used in the Old Testament when God said in Genesis chapter 22 to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. And he says it a couple of times to him. Whom you love. Same word, the Septuagint translators of the Old Testament used this word when they translated that in Genesis 22. So it means his one and only. Now, like I said before, angels and men are sometimes called the Son of God in Scripture. But when Jesus is called the Son of God, you are my son... It's in a completely different sense. It's indicative of the unique relationship that the Son has with the Father and the Father with the Son. There's intimacy here. There's equality here. The angels are called the sons of God in the book of Job. The sons of God sang for joy on the day of creation, we're told in Job 38. They're called the sons of God. Adam is said to be the son of God in Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus when he traces it all his genealogy all the way back to Adam the son of God well the sons of God angels and men not the son of God Jesus is the son in a very very special sense that distinguishes him from all others. And he adds, and with you I am well pleased, meaning he's, this is the special object, the supreme object of God's delight. So two things are being said here about Jesus Christ. He's the one and only Son, and he's the, the Father's supreme delight. He loves his son. I mean, this is ineffable love. You can't even describe it. Preachers have been trying for 2,000 years to describe the love of God, particularly the love that God has for his son. This is an overwhelming, indescribable love. How do you calculate an infinite love that the father had for the son from all eternity? It was an indication of their relationship in John 1 when he says that the Son was in the bosom of the Father before his incarnation. What kind of an image does that bring to your mind? He's in the bosom of the Father, the Son. We don't take that literally, but that's indicating a very special relationship of intimacy, communion, the deepest affection and love imaginable in the bosom of the Father. Now, let's go back to the Gospel of John just for a second and let's just think about this. So I'm trying to emphasize the Father's love for the Son and how immeasurable that love must be. None of us can grasp it. None of us can calculate the greatness of the Father's love for the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ said this in John 14, verse 21. Whosoever keeps my commands loves me. This is how we know a person loves Jesus Christ. He wants to please the lord he wants to do what he says he wants to live a life of obedience this is how we this is the most basic trait of a christian he loves christ he hates sin and he loves jesus you can kind of boil the whole thing down to that as to what is a christian jesus says he that loves me keeps my commands but then he goes on and says same verse And he will be loved by my Father and myself. My Father will love him and I will love him. Well, that's wonderful to know that. That we'll be loved by God. When we are lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, parents, we... We love people that treat our children well. If you want to get on my bad side, just treat my son or daughter with disrespect. But people that treat your children well, you love them. So the, the father and the son love, the father loves the person that loves his son Jesus, showing his love by wanting to please him. Now, in the next chapter of John, chapter 15, verse 9, we're going to take this a step further up the ladder. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me. Now, we just saw, We just tried to talk about the Father's love for the Son. This is my beloved Son. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He's talking to his disciples there in the upper room the night before he's crucified. He has just told them, I'm going away by death. And they're going to be stricken with grief beyond bear." And He's comforting them in the upper room. He's preparing them for His departure. This is what they need to hear is the Father's love for them, His love for them. But notice that little word as, as the Father has loved me. This is is one of degree. The infinite love of the Father for His Son, Jesus' I have loved you with the same love. That's amazing. Do you doubt God's love for you sometimes? Do you think when you have done something that's very displeasing in his eyes that you've lost the Father's love? It doesn't work like that in the kingdom. The Father's love is not fickle. It's not, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. That does not apply to God. That applies to human love. Fickle, human love. Oh, I've fallen out of love. I don't love him anymore. No, you never did. You thought you did. Not true love. True love is constant. Constant. Uninterrupted. This is the way love is to be. This is the ideal. This is the love of God. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now I want to take it even a step higher. In John 17, verse 23, Jesus is now in this section, He is praying for those that would believe on Him through the testimony of the apostles. He's praying for the church. He's praying for Christians of the 21st century. He's praying for you here in John 17, verse 23. That the world may know that you have loved them. Them being the believers who would, trust Christ through the testimony of the apostles. that the world may know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. So, what is my point? So you take that amazing love of God for the Son, and the Bible stretches it to the point of saying, and Jesus himself assured his apostles You have the same love. God's love cannot be in little spoonfuls. Everything about God is in the infinite degree. His love is an infinite love. So if you're loved by God, you are loved in the infinite degree. Jesus has underscored it very powerfully in those Words before he was to go to the cross, that only John records. It's an amazing account, the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17, occupies those chapters, five chapters. Okay, let's move on to the last part. Jesus is approved by testing, verses 12 and 13. So he's been acknowledged by the Father. He's been anointed by the Spirit. He's been announced by John the Baptist. But now we have this very brief account. This is all introduction to his ministry. Jesus hasn't spoken. He hasn't ministered to people yet. There's silence here in the the introduction From him. We just see him going through baptism. Now he goes into the wilderness. Notice the language here. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This language is really strong. Notice the Holy Spirit again in this passage. The Spirit is mentioned. For the third time, the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The importance of the Holy Spirit. Notice that word immediately. This is a word you're going to read 41 times in Mark's gospel. 41 times. It appears only 51 times in the entire New Testament. But 41 in this gospel because it's He's a man on the move. It's it's drama. It's unfolding very quickly, immediately, immediately. The Spirit drove him. That word is the word used for the exorcisms of demonic spirits in the gospel. This is how strong it is. He was expelled. He was thrusted out by the Spirit, into the wilderness. In other words, this was not a situation that Jesus just on his own walked into. I'll come to that in a minute, how important that is to understand it like it's written here for us. The Spirit thrust him into the wilderness. Why? Why? Notice, it's into the wilderness again, into the vast, barren desert, uninhabited, where there's wild animals, it adds. The wilderness, again, to emphasize it, this is a, in the Bible, this is kind of a, this is a motif, the motif of the wilderness. It's, you find that Moses was in the wilderness, in the desert, for how long? 40 years. The life of Moses can be, He lived to be 120. His life divides up into three 40-year periods very nicely. This is how you think through the life of Moses. First 40 years, he was in Egypt. Growing up in the household of Pharaoh. Next 40 years, he was in the deserts of Midian. Being a shepherd. When he encountered the burning bush at age 80. The last 40 years, he was taking the nation of Israel through the wilderness on the way to Canaan. Forty is a very important number in the Bible. It's a period of testing. It's the period of provision. Here, particularly, it's the period of Jesus' testing, but we have it spoken of as he's going to be tempted. Because of the agent involved. In the, in the original language, it's a word that can be translated either way. It can be tested or tempted. It was said that God is doing this, it would, be t- it would be tested. He was tested by God. But no, Satan is the agent here, so what is it? It's temptation. Satan's strategy has never changed in all these centuries. He's still up to the same thing, baiting, enticing into sin, in order to maintain man's alienation from God, in order to drive a wedge between man and God, bring dishonor upon God, and so on. So he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Now, it it doesn't describe anything about it. We don't know the nature of the temptation, but read Matthew's account if you want to know how he was tempted, because there it's very specific, it's laid out. The account is complete. Being tempted by the devil. So now just think for a moment. Jesus Christ is in the wilderness. This is a, it's a place of danger. There's wild animals there. It's desolate. There's nothing there. It's a very depressing place to be if you're being tempted at the same time. Now, contrast in your mind with Adam. The first Adam, he was put in paradise, an earthly paradise. Think of the most beautiful garden you've ever seen. This is where Adam was placed with his wife and in that wonderful environment before sin entered into the world and changed the complexion and the atmosphere of everything he still failed he was broken there by the devil now lord jesus christ he he's put in sort of a hellish place to endure temptation and the fact that I don't need the record to tell me he was victorious. I don't, need, I don't need Mark to tell me that. It's so obvious at the end when it says, and the angels came and ministered to him. He told the devil to go on, and the devil left, and the holy angels of God came and ministered to Jesus. This this implies his victory. In this, Tim, in this situation, he was victorious. The first Adam fell in the best of circumstances. But put Jesus in the worst possible environment, an evil environment, and he conquered Satan. So he went from the 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 Experience of having the Father speak to him and tell him, I love you, I'm delighted in you. He went from that experience into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he comes out on the other side. He's now ready for his public ministry, he is prepared, he's ready to go. I love it that the Spirit had to drive Jesus out into the place of temptation. He did not voluntarily just walk into the place of temptation. This is a great lesson for us as believers, because sometimes we tempt the devil to tempt us. You ever thought of that? We deliberately put ourselves in the way of temptation by doing something foolish. The Lord Jesus Christ never did anything like that. He was the perfect man. He never put himself in the way of temptation. The Spirit had to expel him into that place where he would encounter the enemy, the evil one, the prince of darkness, and be tempted to sin. Great lesson for us. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org